Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our country vowed to never forget 21 years ago, but those words require action. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation has over 80 runs, walks, and climbs across America every year, plus dozens of more golf outings and barbecues you can be part of. There are so many ways that you can take action. Register for an event in your area or volunteer to start one. Do good and never forget by donating $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. What is going on, Belly Up Sports fam? It's your man, Parker Ainsworth, here with another edition of FN Sports, podcast for teachers grade sports' biggest issues. And this week, after taking a week off to have some summer vacation time, we are back with another edition of Study Hall, which is where you bring questions of potential theses to class, and they get graded. Now, we took in all of these Twitter theses from various Twitter replies and DMs. We got a handful to go through, so let's jump right in let's go ahead and start off with our gold stars and detentions segment two gold stars to hand out this week one goes to sb award winner Paige beckers beckers speech did go viral Paige beckers won the sb for best women's college athlete to which she used the stage to take a moment to give credit to all of the black women that necessarily get the same type of accolades and awards she pointed out that 80 percent of the women who won awards at the end of the wnba season last year were black however the vast majority of the coverage on things like espn frankly the company giving her this award are white and so she was using her platform and her stage as a white female athlete to point out like hey let's make sure we talk about all of the other great people doing great things for this sport and this country, and this world, and so on. It was a really powerful moment from Paige Beckers, especially when you factor in that she's just 19, right? That's powerful, powerful things out of a 19-year-old. Second gold star goes to Derek King, who is making the most of this name, image, and likeness 
trend. Now, the quarterback himself, Derek King, signed a $20,000 deal with College Hunks Movering. He also has signed a handful of other deals around town in Miami. Moreover, he's using his impact to get his entire team various name, image, and likeness deals around town. Kind of the same version when you see like Tom Brady take all his linemen out to a nice steak dinner. Derek King is doing that by getting all his guys paid in various ways. And so shout out to Derek King for using the system to his advantage and his team's advantage like that. Hope that becomes a more common practice across college sports as we dive deeper into the name, image, and likeness world. Loan detention this week, although I guess you could pan out a lot more, but the only one I want to talk about right now is for USA Basketball. For a loss to a Nigeria team that, listen, I get that Precious Achua is an NBA player. I get that Josh Okogie is an NBA player. But anytime you're lining up with Kevin Durant and Jason Tatum and Bam Adebayo and Bradley Beal and Dame Lillard and Draymond Green and Zach Levine, you ought to win the game. It's a very, very talented team of several NBA All-Stars. Now, I get this is their first time really playing together, and I get that this is an exhibition of sorts. Durant logged almost 29 minutes, and Jason Tatum logged 28 minutes. Zach Levine logged almost 22 minutes. These guys played enough minutes to impact the game. This should have worked in their favor. I don't really understand how this is excusable, right? We're preparing for the Olympics, and I understand that this is not necessarily the same team that went on in 04 and kind of embarrassed the United States at the Olympics. However, it's got a weird, eerie feeling that's very similar to 04 in that the best players outside of a handful are saying, I'm okay. And frankly, as a country, we're not good enough to win the gold medal doing that. Uh, we didn't do it in 04, and it feels fairly similar in this moment. Now, I will say that Nigeria deserves some credit. They deserve all the praise that they're getting because this is a growing program, right? And the 2012 Olympics, now obviously that's not an exhibition, and it's a very different USA team, but in the 2012 Olympics, the United States doubled their score, right? This was a, this is not a competitive basketball game. And they show up last night, I'm sorry, recording on a Sunday, show up last night on Saturday night and beat the United States. And so to that end, we do need to make sure we're giving them credit. So the detention is not, oh, how could you lose to Nigeria? Like they are a good team. It's more to the lackluster effort that was coming out of the United States. Like that was clearly playing an exhibition as if it was an exhibition. And yes, Kevin Durant just played a really tough playoff series, but Zach Levine did not, right? Kevin Love did not. Darius Garland did not. Bradley Beal, frankly, hadn't played in a while. Dame Lillard hadn't played in a while. Like, these guys should have been better prepared and more ready to go, and they were not. They took it too lightly. All right, so if we're diving into our first thesis of the week, first thesis comes from the sports hot stove podcast which is at sports stove on twitter they replied and their thesis was three rookie quarterbacks will start week one as i hear that i'm thinking that's easily an a minus it's really just one or two questions and anyway i'm thinking that's an a minus all right so three rookie quarterbacks starting week one again submitted by at sports stove on twitter now there are two definites as I see it. And Trevor Lawrence should definitely be starting for Jacksonville. Uh, they went all in, took him as the number one pick. And then Zach Wilson, I believe, also should be starting for the New York Jets, right? They traded Sam Darnold. They are all in on the Zach Wilson project. Now, the question becomes, will there be a third in the first week? I think, in my head, the first guy that comes to my mind is 
Justin Fields. you got to think about trading up nine spots if you're Chicago to get a quarterback is a power move. You don't do that for someone you're not planning on playing. I also am a big fan of Justin Field. We could talk about that on a different podcast about how I think he'll be a successful NFL quarterback, right? There's a stigma against Ohio State guys and the system, da-da-da, and so on. But that system's also in the NFL with Urban Meyer and now Trevor Lawrence, right? Like, theoretically, that system should be okay. But that's not necessarily here or there. I see Justin Field as the next guy because of what Chicago did to go get him and who they've got around him. So Chicago moves up nine spots, makes a swap with the New York Giants. They also, behind him, just have Andy Dalton and Nick Foles. Now, I think Andy Dalton and Nick Foles are two very good backup quarterbacks, but you don't move up nine spots in the NFL draft to play Andy Dalton and Nick Foles in 2021, right? That's just not something that puts you in a winning position. And I think Chicago kind of sees themselves in the NFC North right now as a team that could lobby for it to be playing to win some ball games. There's no reason to be, you know, tanking for Trevor right now. There's no tanking for Tua like there was a year ago. This seems to be a time for them to try to go win some ball games. I, I also think that it's worth pointing out that like Dalton and Foles have played the backup role before and could very easily, at least one of them, and maybe only one of them makes it out of camp, become that veteran that helps work Justin Fields through the system and helps show him how to do things. I guess the big question here to me, because I do see him being a starter this season, is will Justin Field be the starter in week one? I think I'd hedge yes, and that's why I gave this an A minus. However, the reason it's an A minus, not an A plus, is that could come later, right? They open up week one with the LA Rams. Maybe they're splitting time at that point, right? Kind of working his way up. Or maybe they're putting him in the second half of the game once they're losing the game to the Rams because Andy Dalton's going to throw a bunch of picks to whomever, right? Uh, he's going to have – I'm going to suit down his face. I think that that's the only way I see this going south is that Justin Field may be a starter by week four, five, six. Uh, the bye week, unfortunately, for Chicago is until later. Otherwise, I'd say at the bye week. But with the bye week being later, that might actually mean he's more likely to start in week one than if it were like in week five. And they'd say, let's play the first month without him and then let him come in after bye week once he's seen NFL action a little bit. I think we also here need to mention Trey Lance in San Francisco. I just don't think that's going to happen week one unless they trade Jimmy Garoppolo between now and then, right? Jimmy Garoppolo has been fine. They've been to the Super Bowl when he is healthy, right? George Kittle and he, him clearly had a a good connection. I think that if they were to move Jimmy Garoppolo before the season started, then Trey Lance moves up into this conversation too because Nate Suddenfield and Josh Rosen are kind of backups, right? Like uh, Josh Rosen may not have gotten a fair shake in Arizona, may not have gotten a fair shake in Miami. Say that all you want. He might just be a backup, right? The one first-round quarterback I don't necessarily starting week one is Mac Jones. Uh, I wasn't super high on Mac Jones before the draft. If you go back and remember those podcasts, However, I will say that if he were to start the season, if you were to come back to me and say, hey, Mr. Ainsworth, the crystal ball, we rolled out and saw that Mac Jones is starting in the 2021 football season for the New England Patriots, I'd say, great, but starting week one seems like a big ask of Bill Belichick, right? This is the same Bill Belichick that does not like trading up to take quarterbacks in the first round and doing those kinds of things. Like we had heard all those stats before they took Mac Jones. They ended up taking him anyway. I just don't know that the right kind of ask on a guy that's already stretching his limits with the new youth movement in the NFL. I also think it's worth pointing out that Cam Newton in New England was much different post-COVID than he was before it. And we've seen him back some athletes and not others. And frankly, they may be rolling their dice and saying, huh, what does he look like with a year-ish of recovery as opposed to in the days right after, the weeks right after? Because again, 
there were athletes like Evan Fournier talking about how there were just days he woke up in a daze, right? And Russell Westbrook talking about how he never had his lungs functioning correctly in the Orlando bubble. And so a year later, maybe Cam is somewhere in between where he finished the season and where he started it. And maybe that's the kind of guy that's out there starting. Again, I see Belichick hedging more towards that in week one. And this thesis is about rookie quarterbacks starting in week one. So I think it's Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, so much so that I don't even think we have to discuss them. I really think that that's very solid. I think Justin Fields is the third guy. I'm giving this an A- because I think so. It's an A-, minus, but not a plus, because again, could end up having other guys. You could end up having teams choose to wait a couple weeks before going with their guys. But I think you're going to see several of these guys this year. I think you're going to see several of these guys this year because since the rookie wage scale got changed back around the time of Sam Bradford, you all remember how much money Sam Bradford got paid? Since the rookie wage scale got changed, every first-round quarterback, with the exception of Jordan Love, who's entering his second year, has started in the NFL by the end of their second year. So if Jordan Love starts at some point this year, which with all the Aaron Rodgers hubbub, who knows, that's going to be the consistent trend. So I would think it's fair to think all five of these guys by the next 24 months will have started NFL football games. Do I think they're all going to be successful? We'll see. But I think that's a trend that will not go away. You don't move up in the draft. You don't tank all those games, etc., to not play these guys, right? We see, we're seeing more and more guys playing right away as opposed to used to wait a year or two behind someone the way Aaron Rodgers did and so on. We're seeing more guys get out there and play right away. Okay, Parker, so the thesis statement for this commercial is James Harden has the best beard in sports. What do you think about that thesis statement? Oh, I give it an A. You know, as a Houston guy, we, we seem to have an affinity for our beards between guys like him, Dallas Keiko, lots of big beards in the Houston area. What do you think about the thesis? So I'm a Jets fan, and I absolutely love the beard that Ryan Fitzpatrick has. So maybe I would give Ryan Fitzpatrick the nod over James Harden. But you're talking to a couple of bearded teachers, and we know a thing or two about making sure that you maintain that mane. So check out the beard struggle. The beard struggle, they make oils, they make balms, they even have have this heated comb to make sure that you get your beard straight so that you're looking fresh. I know I've really enjoyed using the oil they make for my quarantine beard of sorts. It's nice and long these days, but it'll <laughs> keep it nice and healthy and hydrated. And if you're listening to our show, you can use FN Sports 15 and get 15% off your oils, your balms, your shampoos, conditioners, whatever you need to use to keep your beard looking healthy. Absolutely. Check out The Beard Struggle at thebeardstruggle.com. Whether you're just starting to grow or you have a luscious mane already, The Beard Struggle's got all the products that you need. The Beard Struggle. Feast your face. All right. So our second thesis of the week comes from Jason Voorhees, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but Jason Voorhees is at Mustaine3651, that's at M-U-S-T-A-I-N-E 3651 on Twitter. His thesis is relatively long, and I think there's some self-defense here, but the narrative that Philly fans are responsible for running Ben Simmons out of town is tone deaf. Most knowledgeable fans supported Ben for the long haul and have been more than patient with Ben. If anyone deserves blame for Simmons being ousted, that's on Ben. Hashtag here they come, which 
was the hashtag for the Philadelphia 76ers this year. This thesis gets a C from me. I think it speaks in too many blanket statements. We'll get to that in a second, but I'm sitting here at a C. All right, so the thesis is long, but it's about fans not necessarily being responsible for running Ben Simmons out of town, and I gave it a C, and here's why. This is the same fan base that threw batteries at Santa Claus at an NFL game. Okay, It's not toned up to think there's some large chunk of Philadelphia that does, in fact, have a problem with Ben Simmons, nor to think that those folks haven't been quiet this whole time. Right, Philly is known for being loud and boisterous. They'll pour popcorn on Russell Westbrook, and they'll throw batteries at Santa Claus. This is a fan base that lets you know what they think, especially when they're upset. That said... Ben Simmons let us know as much during the press conferences in the NBA playoffs, right? So this is not just hypothesis out of me. He said that Philly was a tough crowd, and he clearly has heard this even if it's just a vocal minority like Jason wants to point out, right? If Jason's saying that, but this isn't really the most of us or this isn't really the smart ones of us, that's fine, Jason. But this is the group that Ben Simmons has talked about hearing. Right, And so there is something there, even if it's not everyone, even if it's not you, even if it's not smart people, this is someone. This isn't a failing thesis. I didn't give it an F. I gave it a C because, as it should, it does put the onus back on Ben Simmons. Because even the fans that have frankly been loud and upset with Ben Simmons are not asking him to shoot better. They're just asking him to shoot right? This isn't people saying, I wish Ben Simmons was Ray Allen. This is people saying, I wish Ben Simmons had the confidence of Russell Westbrook. And that is something that is fixable, right? Even if he's not a natural shooter, or like Kevin O'Connor said, shooting with the wrong hand, or whatever the case may be, if Ben Simmons would just shoot, he could end a lot of these problems. And so some of the onus does need to go there. Even in the age of mental health and making sure we're taking accountability for our impact on people's mental health, like even NBA players, Ben Simmons can fix this by just shooting. No one's saying to shoot the ball 45% from three. They're just saying shoot the ball when you're open or when you got to lay it. Again, this is a C, not an A. That onus ties its way weirdly back to the you know, the, the old Sixers fan that says the process is working, though we've heard for so long now, because that fan tried to convince the world that years of intentionally losing would somehow breed something other than losing, right? It's not like the come and last for LeBron or the zilts for Zion, zero wins for Zion, or whatever short-term solution teams had. This is a process that involved intentionally dropping games over several seasons and is now upset that they can't win the big games. And there does need to be some onus on, you know, those fans weren't super upset publicly when this was the process and this was working and this was smart, right? They were smarter than the rest of us because they were losing games. But the truth is the process is over once you got your potential MVP in Joel Embiid, or once you got your potential defensive player of the year in Ben Simmons. That's when you had to flip the switch. And Philadelphia fans continue to say that, no, this is the process. This is us being smart. This is intentional, blah, blah, blah. And playing losing basketball intentionally may have played into Ben Simmons not shooting the basketball. And that's a weird thing for Philadelphia to grapple with, right? They did this whole process to get two stars. And now they definitively have 
two all-star caliber players that are still in their early parts of their career and look like they could have a long time in the NBA, assuming they stay healthy enough to, now they're really done with one. And I think that that is an interesting back and forth for Philly fans to grapple with. That's all a long-winded way to get to. If you want to say that Philadelphia fans did not run Ben Simmons out of town, that's fine. But they certainly are doing that now, right? Sixers fans sure don't seem to be worried about what he thinks of them now. They want him gone. He's the guy that Sixers fans adamantly defended not trading with a bunch of youth around him, whether it's young players and picks, for James Harden just last January, right? Now there's talk about getting him swapped straight up for C.J. McCollum and maybe just some contract fluff to make the numbers work out around it, right? If you're dropping your trade request from a 31-year-old MVP that has been in the playoffs eight straight years, scored more points in the last decade than anyone else in the NBA, and you're going to drop what you want. You don't want that guy anymore, but now you're going to drop it down to, we'll take a 29-year-old shooting guard that has yet to make an all-star game, right? You're running the guy out of town. You changing your trade request and say, we'll take the 29-year-old guy that's yet to make an all-star game at this point is you running the guy out of town. It's you lowering what you'll take back and just saying, fine, we'll take anything. And that's worth noting. All right, so our next thesis comes from at Fantasy Turf on Twitter. Fantasy Turf is a good fantasy site if you guys are trying to figure out where to get your good fantasy information and you've done all of your searching through the belly up pages. Fantasy Turf said the Arizona Cardinals will win the Super Bowl this year. This I give a solid C minus. It doesn't flunk. I guess the kid is eligible, but this gets a C minus. All right, so again, Fantasy Turf said the Arizona Cardinals will win the Super Bowl this year. I gave it a C minus, and let's just talk about why it didn't flunk. First, football is weird. The NFC West favorite Seattle Seahawks might just have their quarterback force his way out of town. The Cardinals are currently in Vegas odds, the least favorited team to win the NFC West, but actually weirdly in the middle of the pack to win the NFC. So I don't think Odds makers necessarily know what to make out of this either. Uh, that also could hint at how strong the division is for what it's worth. If you're a gambler, they're at 3,300 uh, plus 3,300 to win the uh, win the NFC. If San Francisco were to hit the rookie quarterback button and say we're swapping out Jimmy G and we're going to trade Lance, and there really was some unrest in Seattle, you're down to the Cardinals and the Rams to win the division. Matthew Stafford's quarterback for the Rams. We're trying to tug and pull and see how that goes. Is he more successful in that setup than he was ever going to be in Detroit? Or is the Detroit problem also part of his problem? And maybe that's a tough gamble for them. Who knows? We'll see how that plays out. Uh, I wouldn't bet against it. I think I like the Rams to come back after the Super Bowl hangover a year ago. We'll see. I will say this. If you told me, again, Crystal Ball here and said, Miss Rainsworth, the winner of the NFC West will win the Super Bowl, I would believe it, right? The NFC West is a very talented division with, at their peaks, four very talented football teams. And so I could see how winning this division would serve as a way to win the NFL Super Bowl because that means you're going to be battle-tested all season long. You're going to have already game plans from the best teams in the conference. And you go in the playoffs if you win this division, potentially with the bye, although I guess there could be some war of attrition there and everyone's records could suffer from it. 
Um, I guess that's why I don't want to flunk this is because the winner of the NFC West should be a Super Bowl favorite and could very well win the Super Bowl. If that were the Cardinals, it'll feel silly to be like, well, they won the best division of football. How are they not going to win the NFL, right? Things working against them, right? We talked about how great those three teams are, and they got to play each of them twice. Outside of that, they still have the 13th hardest schedule, again, based on last season's win percentage, which isn't a great sign for them. I think it's worth pointing out that we all think of the Hale Murray and the great moment that was for the Arizona Cardinals last year and how it looked like. That's Kyler Murray with DeAndre Hopkins to win a game against a great Bills team and how that really was this powerful moment for the Arizona Cardinals. After that game, they went 2-5 and five to finish the season and their two wins were against the Eagles and the Giants, teams that didn't make the playoffs. That's not a great sign. And I say that's not a great sign because they should have, you'd hope, ridden the high from that game, right? They should have taken that and used that as a way to continue to push themselves into the next stratosphere of the sport. Again, they beat a great Buffalo team on that Hale Murray, right? That should be something that build on. Instead, that's something that they kind of fell off after. And it, it's, it's a sign of a young team, but it's not a great sign to have that kind of be your highlight of the, of the year in the middle of the season. I will say they added J.J. Watt, and that's a great locker room piece. I also think it's worth pointing out that a healthy J.J. Watt theoretically would also help Isaiah Simmons and Chandler Jones on the opposite side of him. And so, like, theoretically, they could have a better defense than they had a year ago. I just, the only thing keeping this from flunking to me is that, like, football weird things happen. I, I just don't see the Arizona Cardinals will win the Super Bowl this year. However... If the assumption is Arizona Cardinals will be better this year, that I would give a, a very high grade to. I don't know what quantifiable data you'd put aside from a Super Bowl on getting better, but young team improving, another year under the coach, Kyler Murray's got another year under his belt, and frankly, a more normal offseason with the coach and with uh, Murray and with Hopkins and all those different pieces. I like Christian Kirk with them too. I think that a more traditional offseason will help make them a better team. I think more time together will help make them a better team. I just don't know that better team means winning the Super Bowl. All right. Our second to last thesis comes from, I'm assuming, our buddy Andy at Zag Score. It's a great podcast if you have thoughts surrounding Gonzaga basketball. It's all Gonzaga all the time. It's at ScoreZagsScore on Twitter. I'm assuming this is Andy who hosts the podcast presenting the thesis that reads, Philip Petrusev will be an all-rookie team performer next season. Well, dang it, Andy. Of course you're asking about Philip Petrusev. I should have known that this was going to be where that thesis goes. I'm going to give this a B-. We'll dive into why that's so fun in a second. But dang, of course, ScoreZagsScore is bringing up Philip Petrusev. All right, so... Philip Petrusev will be an all-rookie team performer next season. I gave this a B-. This is fun because it comes from ScoreZag Score, and it is a NBA draft deep dive of sorts that a lot of you know American fans that watch Power 5 basketball and, and March Madness and so on probably don't know who this guy is. A lot of scouts know who this guy is and, frankly, are probably trying to find film on this guy as we speak. Philip Petrusev was a sophomore for Gonzaga in the 2019-20 school year. For Gonzaga, he, was a thir- he started all 33 games, played 26 minutes a game, averaged 17.5 points 
almost eight rebounds. And he's a really strong player in a good front court for a really good Gonzaga team. Remember that Gonzaga team was talked about like, will they win the big one in 2019-20 before COVID hit and got rid of March Madness. And so a lot of the country did not get to meet Philip Petrusev. They're not staying up late in New York to watch West Coast Conference games or waiting till the tournament and he didn't get that tournament to show off. He declared for the 2020 draft and ends up backing out right before the draft happens because the draft is so close to the season, and he doesn't necessarily feel like he has a fair shake in getting to work out for these teams, right? Drops out for the draft because teams are going to watch him play March Madness, and there's untraditional workouts and so on. He's not feeling he's got a fair shake. However, he when he dropped out of the draft, he also is in this predicament where he doesn't know if the West Coast Conference is going to play college basketball in 2020, 2021. And so he's saying, like, oh, my God, what do I do? He ends up going overseas to play in the Adriatic Basketball Association. Now, the Adriatic Basketball Association, the ABA over there, does not have many people that are D1 products out of a place like Montverde coming to play basketball in their early 20s, right? That's not something that you see over there a lot. And he went over there and won league MVP at just 21 years old. He also led league in scoring, led league in points, and so on. This is, you know, not the same kind of European league that Luka Doncic dominated with when he was playing with... Real in his time in his time in Europe before coming into the league. However, it's also not some like joke of a league. I, I, I don't mean to use the word joke as a pun, but Nikola Jokic just won the M- NBA MVP and he played in this league right before coming to the NBA as well. Now he was a second round pick because it's not again the top top league in Europe. However, it clearly does have NBA type of talent. Dario Sark is also from this league. How that helps Philip Petrosev is that this is not him playing against a bunch of kids that are suiting up for their college basketball game after taking an online version of sociology that day, like many of our kids did this year in a weird COVID college basketball year. He was playing true professional basketball against guys that do this all day long for a living. And so there is a degree of difficulty there and he feels like if you read the reports he did grow and develop his game over in europe it's also worth pointing out that he lists at 6 11 he might be seven foot by the time he gets the draft because he is a growing young kid he's got a frame that looks like he could put on a little bit of weight he's got a great touch on the basketball he's got good mid-range good float uh, he's got a great passing ability as far as being able to go both hands one hand puts good spin on and bounce passes and, and is a really crafty passer however his big hindrances as an NBA prospect are he's a shooting big man that's not a three-point shooting big man, right? He's going to continue to work on his depth, and he's not a great defender. And I don't mean that to say, like, he's thin and he's slight. He averaged at almost seven feet tall, less than a block per game in each of his seasons at Gonzaga, and also in his season in the Adriatic League. Like, he's not a rim protector, whether that's schematic or or based on his skills, right? That's not necessarily the kind of thing that he does. He His assist numbers aren't indicative of how strong a passer he is from his time in college basketball, not necessarily because he was also a hockey assist guy, but because he has the vision. They just played him, whether they had Chris Bird or whomever, they, they played him closer to the rim, as for, and he's more of a scoring threat, right? Uh, as a mid-range shooter, if he's inside of 17 feet, that's a bucket. And so that's worth utilizing and that's what Gonzaga did I see him and I project him I haven't finished my NBA mock draft although I am working on one I would say that he's probably a late first round or a second round pick and to me that means he's going to end up on a team that already has a big man playing in front of him 
right? And so if he's not going to be a starter for a majority of the season, he's going to have trouble making an all-rookie team. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think he has promise, right? That's why I gave this a B-. minus. He is a tall guy with great touch, and those guys tend to last, right? Um, theoretically, if he could continue to develop as a defender or shoot behind the arc or both, he could be a 10-year NBA guy, right? That said, that those things aren't easy. We've seen plenty of big guys that if they do this, then that, that don't do the this, right? And so as a late first-round pick, if he's not a starter and he continues to develop behind somebody and grow his game and get better at those things and so on, that could lead to a long career, and that's great. But this thesis is about being an all-rookie team performer, and you only got one shot at that. And last season... Those went to guys that got a lot more minutes than I'm envisioning for Petrosev next year. Maybe not guys that have better long-term careers than Petrosev, but I do think that'll be guys that are starting on teams next year. Now, right, there are other bigs in this draft, most notably Evan Mobley, Daron Sharp out of UNC. He's, got, he's high on a lot of people's lists. Kofi Cockburn out of Illinois is high on people's list. Obviously, I'm a Texas guy, so I got to tell you about Jericho Sims, but Luca Gars is a more traditional big. So, this idea that he'd be a top-tier big, especially with you know how much Adriatic basketball did people get to study this year, how many war guys has he gotten to go do, and so on, doesn't necessarily help him a lot. If he's a backup, I don't think that's going to work for the all-rookie team either. Here's what I will say, and the reason it's a B-minus is he is good. He could be very good, depending on how much development he's really gotten done the last year. And there are six spots four bigs, right? There are two forwards and a center spot, and he's kind of both, and there are two teams. And so theoretically, it would be easier for him to make it than, say, other Gonzaga product, Jalen Suggs, right? Because there are four guard spots, and there are a lot of guards in this draft, a lot of perimeter players, and that could prove to be the more difficult position to make. And so I don't want to just flunk this because I think he will be good. I just think he's got to take more than a year to develop from what I saw of him last at Gonzaga. I also think that he realistically ends up on a team where he just gets to develop and not play a lot this year. And so he might not be eligible from a minute standpoint either. All right. Our last thesis comes from at all anyone needs on Twitter. The thesis reads the tour de France is the most impressive endurance achievement in sports. I don't know if we're like debating these things a lot because endurance sports are kind of things that, Americans don't necessarily have the time to focus on. We're, we're very fast twitch mindset here in the United States. But I'm going to give this an A-. There's only like one thing that I think of that is potentially as difficult. And honestly, I'm going to leave a little room for stuff I don't think of. All right, so the thesis reads, the Tour de France is the most impressive endurance achievement in sports. I gave it an A- because on the A side of this thing, it is a crazy long bicycle race up and down mountains all over France with people living their entire life surrounding this one sport and it happens once a year like this is the top of the top of the top and one of the most endurance heavy sports there is and it's so much the top of the top of the top that cheating is kind of just a thing people do in it we always hear of blood doping scandals. We always hear of people taking PEDs. We always hear of people doing these things just to survive the Tour de France, right? This is not a thing that, well, Mark McGuire took steroids, and that's why he hit all those home runs. Barry Bonds took steroids. That's why he hit all his home runs. This is like 
the guy in the exact middle of the league for batting average taking steroids just to be in the middle of the league, right? All these guys competing in Tour de France are having to take those things just to survive the difficulty of this race. My only comparison when I think of this is what I call like a super marathon, right? When people run literal hundreds of miles over the course of time. This leads me to a little bit of a personal story, so bear with me. Over the course of the pandemic, I'm the kind of guy that goes to the gym frequently, and during the pandemic, it was not the greatest idea to go to gyms. So I quickly and abruptly decided to just take up running. I decided I was going to go outside and I was going to run, and that was going to be my sweat for the day. Was I was going to go outside and run 30 minutes here, 40 minutes there, whatever it took, right? And that ended up accumulating to me literally running my body into the ground. Like I would just get up and say, I'm going to run for an hour and a half today. And you know, 12 miles later, I'm like, oh my God, I can't walk. And I literally developed some knee and ankle problems. I got a bad shin now. My back wasn't great. I just had to stop exercising for a while. It was not a great feeling to run my body into the ground, which gives me great respect for people that can do running as a sport because I clearly didn't do it right and didn't take care of myself right in doing it. In getting obsessed with running there for a hot second over the course of eight or nine months, I was recommended to read by my wife and did read this book called Born to Run, The Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes, and the greatest race the world has never seen, which is all about the Terhumera native tribe, which is about people that literally just run for days on end. And they also have literal super marathons where they run things like hundreds of miles. Like you're thinking like the 26.2 and how crazy it is to finish one of those things in less than three hours and da da da, da and so on. And these guys are running for hours and hours and hours. Ultra distances is what it's described as in the book, which are over 100 miles. And they're doing it with speed. And so anyway, I highly recommend that book as a teacher to go read. I'll also sit here and point out that if you're reading that as a runner and your body's breaking down, it becomes a really depressing read because these guys' bodies don't break down because they're doing it right. Anyway, that's the only type of sport I could see being stronger than this. And so that's the only caveat I'm going to give myself is I don't know how to compare those two things. I think of running as more difficult. So I think I'd give the edge to running. However, I can't say I have done anything like the biking that of that kind of a distance. And so I don't want to say that I have any sort of experience with that. I just think of having watched my own body break down running. I'm going to give it to the running. Friends, that is another edition of F in Sports. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for submitting your theses this week. It's fun to have some class participation. We'll call it back and forth with people as they listen to the show and interact with our Twitter online. If you want to find this show, you can find us at F in Sports 2 on Twitter. That's at F-I-N-S-P-R-T-S number 2 all one word on Twitter. We got myself, we've got Kevin working on, on the different posts and things like that. Uh, you'll be able to tell if I use PA, that's me specifically, or if I'm speaking as a show, we'll just have it as the show. You'll also be able to find us on Instagram at F underscore N underscore sports on Instagram. We have all kinds of posts there. Different Kevin's a great job putting in different clips of us talking on the show. And so be on the lookout for that all week as well. 
If you're looking for more of me talking about things like basketball, this week we have midweek mid-range on Wednesday night and 9 o'clock Eastern. After some turnover of stuff there, we are back with the midweek mid-range. We'll be talking about the NBA Finals and the latest there. We'll also talk about Team USA heading into the Olympics and things going on there. The WNBA will have just taken their break, and so we'll have a little bit of time to talk about that as well. So all kinds of fun basketball things on the midweek mid-range, which is on Twitter, that's at Midweek Midrange on Twitter, Instagram, at Midweek Midrange on Instagram, and on YouTube. If you look up the Midweek Midrange, we'll be live at 9 o'clock Eastern on the Midweek Midrange Twitter and YouTube channels. So be sure to check us out there. That's it. That's all we got. As for me, you can find my personal stuff on Twitter and Instagram at Painsworth512. That's at P A I N S W O R T H 512 on Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to like, subscribe, download, do all the wonderful things that help out the podcast, and remember, when it comes to sports, don't flunk with us. Later, guys. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Choose from a great selection of digital coupons and use them up to five times in one transaction. Check our app for details. Baker's, fresh for everyone.